Hi, this is Josh Barrow. We have a short free show for you this week with some key updates about the arraignment uh, and the conditions of release now that Donald Trump has been officially indicted in the documents case. I'd say the real meat of this week's episode, though, is behind our paywall. There's more than 40 minutes of additional content just for paying subscribers, focused especially on the pitfalls the government is likely to face uh, as they enter the pretrial phase of this case. They'll be before Judge Eileen Cannon, who was very favorable to Donald Trump last time he was in her courtroom. Uh, and there are going to be some big substantive issues to fight over in that pretrial phase. In particular, Trump's team is sure to say that much of the key evidence that the government's relying on in this case, testimony and notes from Donald Trump's attorneys, is evidence the government never should have had, uh, that it's attorney-client privilege, that it was improper to pierce the attorney-client privilege. They'll try to get that stuff thrown out. Uh, we're going to talk about how some of that might proceed. We'll talk about strategies that the government could use to mitigate Judge Cannon's damage or, or maybe even try to get her removed from the case, but also about the problems with those approaches that they could use. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about the assumptions we're all making about Judge Cannon and whether they're even reasonable. So anyway, I encourage you, uh, if you'd like to hear that full episode and like to get every full episode of Serious Trouble, more than 40 episodes a year, and if you'd like to help make it possible for us to bring this podcast to you, which remember has no advertising, the only support we get is from listeners like you who pay to subscribe to the show. For $6 a month or $60 a year, you can become one of those supporters, and I encourage you to do that today at SeriousTrouble.show. Thanks for listening. Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Uh, so, Ken, Donald Trump now has been indicted, uh, and we saw the wall-to-wall -wall media coverage down in Miami of his court appearance. Uh, they couldn't cover from inside the courtroom itself, but all of the, the spectacle of Trump's arrival and the campaign event he did right afterward. Did we learn anything interesting in the actual process of this court proceeding at which he was arraigned? Learn anything? No, Josh, not really. Uh, that's not to say it was normal. It was abnormal in a number of ways. Uh, part of it was the uh, the crowds and the interest, although nowhere near the crowds that Trump suggested that we would see. Uh, part of it was the sort of surreal approach the government took at his arraignment. They were kind of passive with regards to things like conditions of bond in a way that they're generally not, probably because of who he is. So, for instance, they, they didn't care about getting him to surrender his passport, which, you know, my white collar clients always have to do. They didn't care about travel restrictions. They didn't even propose until the magistrate judge brought it up himself that there ought to be restrictions on whether or not Trump could contact witnesses in the case. So the magistrate judges on own said, hey, guys, don't, don't you want to talk about whether or not uh, the defendant should be able to contact the witnesses in the case? So as for the stuff about travel and passport, was the government, I, I realized what they did is, was unusual. Was it improper? I mean, this stuff, you know, in theory is not supposed to be punitive. I realize in practice it is. And, you know, it's always the line you, you might beat the rap, but you can't beat the ride. But the reason they take your passport, the reason they impose restrictions on where you may travel pretrial is that they're concerned that you're going to flee. And like, it's hard to imagine someone who's less of a flight risk than Donald Trump, who's one of the most famous people in the world, who is currently running for president of the United States. Like, he's not going to leave the country. He's not going to flee the country. How could he possibly do that? Well, right. And, and this is one of those cases, I think, where it's a situation of um, 
rather than he should be treated worse, everyone else should be treated better like this. So we should only impose conditions that are strict on bail when there's a genuine flight risk, and very often there's not. Uh, yeah, it, it, Trump isn't going to go any place that doesn't have uh, tons of cameras and a KFC, and so he's not going <laughs> to flee to some non-extraditable country and do his presidential campaign from there. He is no flight risk, but neither are the vast majority of people on whom the government demands very onerous uh, bail burdens. Mm -hmm. As for those restrictions on those conversations, uh, Trump has been charged with his, along with his valet. His valet, by the nature of the valet's job, travels with Donald Trump all the time, is at his side. And so the magistrate judge ordered that he's not supposed to talk with Walt Nauta and various other employees of his about aspects of the case. What happens if Trump doesn't follow that rule? Well, in theory, if he violates the rather um, modest and narrow rule that he can't talk about the case to a specified list of witnesses, then the judge could impose uh, harsher conditions of bond, could decide, well, if you're not going to follow the court's orders, that means you're a flight risk or a danger, and therefore I'm going to put these additional restrictions on you. Eventually, he could be looking at something like contempt of court or even, you know, some sort of obstruction or interfering with a witness. Um, I'm not sure that really moves him that much. And later, he was having lunch with his valet. And uh, my suspicion is that they did not scrupulously avoid the topic of what was happening. Although that's, I mean, but is, is him having lunch with the valet any more suspicious than all of the other time that he necessarily spends with his valet in a professional capacity? I mean, the rule isn't against talking to Nauta at all. The rule is, I mean, the government would have to establish something more than that they had been talking to each other at all. Right. And that was the point Trump's lawyers made is you can't bar him from, uh, you know, talking to all these employees who are witnesses against him. Some of them are Secret Service agents, some are attorneys. Uh, I'm just saying that in the context, when uh, he leaves the courthouse to uh, a triumphal lunch, uh, not quite the huge crowd uh, he told us to anticipate, although I do understand he significantly contributed to the lunchtime rush at a Cuban restaurant. Uh, but uh, under the circumstances of what he's yelling about and talking about and, and making big gestures about, it kind of seems likely that's what they were talking about. It would not surprise me. Certainly in his uh, behavior later in the day, he was talking a lot about the case. And then there were no cameras in the courtroom. There are never cameras in federal courts, right? That's just a, a blanket rule for the whole system? It is. Uh, and it's one that's often criticized and questioned. Um, you now have audio recordings sometimes in certain federal courts. And it's something where I think that there will continue to be a debate over whether or not it's appropriate. But that, that's been generally the federal approach. I think that is partially a, a genuine sense um, that it's bad for the rule of law and bad for the process, and partially sort of a kind of elitist federal court sense that we're federal court, you know, we're special. Um, we're not some sort of food court or something. <laughs> uh, and that's why they do it. So it's a combination. And then what did you make of some of the restrictions that reporters were complaining so much about uh, as this was going on? They, they weren't allowed to bring Wi-Fi enabled devices into the hearing room. Uh, they asked for same day audio of the arraignment proceeding and the magistrate judge denied that request. I mean, uh, you know, reporters always complain when they don't get all of the access they want. Do they have reasonable complaints here? I think so, although it's not necessarily outside 
federal court norms. So I've been in plenty of federal courtrooms where for controversial things, uh, they tell you you can't bring in phones or other things that could be used surreptitiously as recording devices or could be used to, in effect, uh, live tweet or, or live comment on the proceedings. That happened, uh, I recall, many years ago now, one of the Avenatti hearings uh, early on that I walked over to. So it, it, it's not terribly unusual. I frankly like it when reporters can live tweet an ongoing um, court hearing or, or you know, otherwise post live updates. But I, my sense is, again, that it's a federal court cultural thing more than it's really a substantive thing. It's seen as undignified and intrusive somehow. So this was this was before a magistrate judge down in Miami. Do we have a sense of when this will end up before Judge Eileen Cannon for the first time and presumably in West Palm Beach rather than in Miami? We don't yet, I believe. Uh, it's The lawyers could certainly schedule something. They could do that by filing a motion uh, that has to be ruled upon. They could request a status conference. Judge Cannon herself may set a status conference. It really varies judge to judge how they manage their calendar. But that could be months from now, weeks? Unlikely. Unlikely to be months. Uh, Likely to be sooner because she's going to want to set a tentative at least trial date and to sort of get a sense of what the parties are going to do with the case. You know, are they going to say, hey, we're taking this to trial immediately? You know, what is their stance going to be? I suspect we're going to see a ton of motion practice uh, where Trump attacks all sorts of aspects of the case in front of his previously at least very friendly forum. So I I doubt there's going to be a fast trial. Let, let's talk uh, about how this got back before Judge Cannon, because we, we speculated some about that last week, and, and I think ultimately incorrectly. Uh, th- there's something like 27 judges, in uh, trial judges in the Southern District of Florida. And it's sort of our, our thinking and the thinking of a lot of people in the media was, you know, how unlikely it was that this got randomly assigned to Judge Cannon again. And it's very common that you have a related case and you give it back to the same judge. And the the, the, the thinking was that was why she got it. But it appears that's not the case. And this is the, the reporting from the New York Times. First of all, we had one uh, reader who correctly pointed out that that buried within the charging document was a form that the government filled out near the back where they indicated this was not, in fact, related to any other cases before the Southern District of Florida. Um, But there's a geography thing here, which is that it's not merely that this case is in the Southern District of Florida. It's that the case is in West Palm Beach. And there are seven judges who might hear cases in West Palm Beach, but as a practical matter, there's really only four judges that cases are being assigned to right now in West Palm Beach. So rather than being this, you know, this fairly unlikely chance that Eileen Cannon would get the case at random, it was actually like a one in four chance. It was a, it was a pretty, it wasn't more likely than not, but it's, it's hardly an unlikely outcome that if a new case comes up in West Palm Beach, that Eileen Cannon is going to end up with it. So it seems like this was uh, truly a random assignment. And it also seems like, and presumably the, the Justice Department would have known all of this stuff before they filed, it seems like it, they, they must have been prepared for the idea that not only could Eileen Cannon get the case again, but that it was, it was pretty likely that she would get the case again. Sure. So, so federal districts, remember, are usually made up of a bunch of counties. Like here in Los Angeles, the Central District of California is made up of seven gigantic counties. And within any district, there's also something called divisions. Uh, which are kind of geographical areas. And the the wall between the divisions is not that um, not that solid, so cases can kind of get moved around a little bit. But yes, yeah, so once you start deciding which division it gets filed in, then you start dictating what subset of judges it goes to. The New York Times did talk to the clerk of the court, that is of the whole district, 
who said that it was randomly selected. Um, I'll accept that for now. I admit to a certain level of skepticism. And in my experience, sometimes more information about these things comes out over the long term about exactly what happened to get a case to a particular judge. Uh, You're right that it now appears that special counsel filed forms saying that this case was not related to any other case. I think that's questionable uh, based on my reading of the local rules to assert that. Maybe the special counsel is thinking since the prior case before Judge Cannon is no longer pending, then it's not technically related under the rules. But I would expect that had it not gone to Judge Cannon, that Trump would have made a move to argue that it should be before her under those local rules. But at any rate, yes, the information we have now from the clerk at least suggests that it was random just within a smaller group uh, than the entire district. Right. And so then, you know, the main thing that stuck with a lot of listeners from last week's show and, you know, Kenny Raincloud over here is the significant difficulties that it creates for the government or that it may create for the government that Judge Eileen Cannon will have this case. And then there's been a lot of conversation. We talked some about it here. Um, there has been some some more heated and more hopeful conversation about this on cable news uh, about the idea that the case might one way or another end up being taken away from Judge Cannon. But first, uh, we, we had one listener question that gets at another theme, which is basically uh, whether we are overly pessimistic about Judge Cannon's likely handling of this case. Uh, Mike writes in, there's a pretty representative letter or comment. Does the fact that she got slapped down so hard by the Court of Appeals and excoriated so hard by fellow members of the field affect her impartiality the second time around? It seems that by human nature, you won't want to put yourself through that again, so you'll behave in a way that is closer to how you were told you should have the first time around. Could that be a reason to expect a more balanced set of rulings? So, Ken, what do you what do you make of that more optimistic take? So it could be. I, I mean, judges are human beings and human beings are complicated, right? So sometimes judges moderate the way they act over time based on rebukes from the courts of appeal and comments from their colleagues and from the press and that sort of thing. And sometimes they don't. Sometimes they develop a thick skin and say basically, well, you know, the circuit's going to do whatever it's going to do, but I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And and here it is. It really comes down to the nature and personality of the individual judge. So it, it could it could go either way. We'll find out what she's like. I would only observe that the set of rulings that she gave, even after there were some initial pushback from the circuit on that initial emergency motion, does not suggest uh, that she is... Uh, going to be very yielding to to pressure. Uh, But we'll find out. Uh, She may be someone who now is going to sort of moderate her approach. You know, there have been federal judges who take the bench and um, do a lot of crazy, weird things and are notorious for it. And then over the years, become extremely professional and respected and, and very good at their jobs and not crazy at all. So who knows? I mean, it's worth remembering, she's quite new at this. She she took the bench in late 2020. Um, so, you know, in terms of, because one of the interesting things to me about the way that she handled that prior litigation is that she issued the set of rulings that was, that was very favorable toward Trump on, on these legal issues where she took on this bizarre theory of what his rights were with regard to these, these documents. Um, but she also, she didn't act quickly enough to really provide him the greatest benefits that he could have. Basically, she ended up shutting down or, or, or slowing down the federal review of those documents after, uh, the, the government had already done part of the review that was probably going to be the most damaging to Trump in the first place. And so there was something that felt a little bit amateur about the whole thing that makes me wonder about, you know, whether she's on her way up a learning curve on on several dimensions. Well, I mean, she's quite young. 
And uh, I mean, in the Trump era, a lot of judges who were appointed were very young, and this happens now and then. But she's only 42, which is very young for a United States District Court judge. Uh, she, her experience is relatively limited. So yeah, she may be learning some of this as she goes along. And I assume also if you took if you took the bench in sort of high COVID, I assume you also saw less case flow initially than you normally would. Yes, and nobody sees many cases like this. Right. So uh, this is an unusual one. Yeah, because I, I've been interested reading the conservative legal commentary on on her and on some of the the theories that have been being put forward in defense of Donald Trump, like that somehow the Presidential Records Act created rights for him to hold on to these documents. And in general, and we talked a little bit about this last week, a lot of the people that I would associate with, you know, the the, the movement to stack the Supreme Court with orthodox conservative judges are not generally going for the more cockamamie stuff that we're seeing here. I mean, Ed Whalen, who has been a, a prime mover behind the effort to put conservatives on the Supreme Court, uh, was tweeting this morning, really, really trashing the theory that the Presidential Records Act created some sort of right for Trump to have a negotiation with the government over whether he would return these documents. Um, I saw Dan McLaughlin writing at National Review, essentially taking the same substantive view that that you did on Eileen Cannon and recusal, which is to say that, you know, you could there could be a record built where you would be able to go to the 11th Circuit and say, here, she keeps ruling in these crazy ways. Please take her off the case. Um, but we're not at a point yet where the government could do that. Now, I think Dan has a very different view than you do on whether it's likely that Eileen Cannon will build that record over the course of this case. He's much more open than you are to the idea that, you know, she had a specific weird legal theory about his rights as a civil plaintiff in that last case. And we shouldn't assume that's just going to transfer over here. But I'm seeing a, a, a significant amount of openness among a lot of commentators who, you know, for example, would have been very quick to say that Alvin Bragg was out on a limb with a ridiculous prosecution, who seem, you know, both to treat this case very seriously, and also who are at least keeping an open mind about the question of whether Judge Cannon is going to handle this case properly. I think they're just maybe more inclined to wait and see than you are. I think that's true. That's fair. And yes, I mean, any legal movement has a lot of different wings and groups and that type of thing. And the conservative legal movement has a lot of different factions. And they're the ones who are sort of intellectually honest enough to say Trump's theory is bullshit. Nonetheless, vote for him. Um, <laughs> nonetheless, let's get him put more judges on the court versus those who will say, Trump's, you know, all of these legal theories are correct and it's time for them to be vindicated and for the marshal of the Supreme Court to take Joe Biden to Gitmo or something. Um, <laughs> so you've got a wide diversity of thought on that, uh, less diversity of thought on whether or not it's good that we wind up with people like Eileen Cannon on the bench. Well, I think there's I think there's a question of what kind of person Eileen Cannon is. I mean, the like is is she a person who is similar to the two Trump appointed judges who reversed her? Uh, on the 11th Circuit when she made those initial set of rulings? Is she someone who's just, you know, green and made a mistake here? Or is she someone who is, you know, much more willing to set law and ideology aside to find her way to a favorable ruling for Donald Trump than various other judges who were similarly appointed to the bench by Donald Trump are? Well, I guess we'll find out. Uh, I yeah. certainly hope to be proved wrong on this point because I think it would be extremely destructive to uh, sort of the respect for the law and the system if she tanks the case in a way that's widely seen as illegitimate. So uh, she may surprise me and she may handle it in a way that's neutral and professional and appropriate.
That's the end of today's free episode of Serious Trouble. Again, uh, there's almost twice as much content this week that's behind the paywall. Uh, we talk about all of those pretrial motions that are going to be a lot of trouble for the government or that are likely to be a lot of trouble, uh, depending on exactly how Eileen Cannon handles them. Uh, we talk about the Presidential Records Act um, and the claims that, not very good claims, but, you know, Eileen Cannon's gone for some not very good claims in the past uh, that uh, the Trump team's likely to advance about how really he did have a right to hold on to these documents and that they were supposed to have to negotiate with him about the return of documents, even classified documents that he had from his presidency. We'll talk about the attorney-client privilege issues that are probably the number one pitfall uh, that's awaiting the president. Um, And again, we'll talk about, uh, you know, what it actually takes to get a judge removed from a case, the answer which is a lot, a lot more than Eileen Cannon has done already, and maybe more than she's ever going to do in this case. Uh, She's probably mindful of the fact that uh, she needs to avoid putting herself in a position where the 11th Circuit removes her from this case. We talk about that. We also talk about some non-Trump legal news. Uh, There's a scandal out in Los Angeles, uh, some really disgusting emails that could lead toward the implosion of two law firms. Plus, we talk about that ChatGPT case, those lawyers who uh, used ChatGPT to come up with fake cases to cite in a real case. Uh, They had their hearing before a judge who wanted to know why they shouldn't be sanctioned. Uh, for lying to the court about uh, what case law existed on statutes of limitations and injuries on commercial aircraft. Really, really good teaching there about what not to do if you are a lawyer. So anyway, I think you'll really enjoy the episode. If you want to hear that, if you want to get every full episode of Serious Trouble, go to SeriousTrouble.show. Upgrade there, become a paying subscriber, become part of the economic base that makes this show possible. We would love to have you over there on the fun side of the wall. Thanks for listening.